All right, we're in Joshua 7 and 8 this morning where the Israelites hit their first real problem and on their conquest of the promised land. And so chapters 7 and 8, they obviously make up one story of Israel uh, taking the city of Ai. Um, but I'm going to lean heavily on chapter 7 because that's where the majority of the tension and the teaching is coming from. So I'm also going to do this in a, in a shorter period of time because of the commissioning of Matt today. So let's dive in. If you grew up in church, the name Achan for you is probably synonymous with lying and stealing. If you grew up in church, you, you probably have heard the term sin in the camp. This is where that term comes from. But what I think is interesting about the way this story is written is that in verse one, the author of this book, he lets us know what's going on before the, the actual people in the story even know what's going on. So we understand what's going on. We understand where this is going before the story even starts. And that's really important because in verse one, we have the sentence that is both very uncomfortable and very important. And that sentence is this. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The anger of the Lord burned. Yeah, I think most of us as 21st century Westerners, we, we want to talk about the love of God. We want to talk about the grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God. But we don't always want to talk about the wrath of God. That's not nearly as, as comfortable a topic. But if we're going to understand, if we're really going to appreciate God's love and mercy, his patience, his grace, we have to understand the biblical teaching of God's wrath. So as a young Christian, um, I'll confess to you this was something that took me a while to really grapple with. You know, I felt like I had an understanding of of God's love and God's grace, but God's wrath. That, that was a harder thing for me to really, to really embrace. It was hard to live in a country for five years where 98% of the population rejected Jesus Christ and to be able to really embrace the fact that my God of love and mercy and kindness and grace was going outside of their acceptance of Jesus Christ to send them to an eternal punishment. That that was a very hard thing for me to wrestle with. And on top of that, my wiring, even after I, I embraced this, my wiring is not such that I would want to tell people about this. I, you know, I was joking um, last week at the Weekend to Remember Marriage Conference. And by the way, thank you for all of you who came out there last week. It was fun to stand up there and see all of you in the audience. But I was joking about how differently Angela and I are wired. We're just, we're fundamentally very, very different people. And I saw this early on in marriage when we were here in Orlando. I was driving down South Street towards downtown and somebody cut us off. And so my wiring is such that I would not only not say anything and not do anything, I might even be inclined to apologize for something I didn't do in the first place. <laughs> I'm sorry, just go ahead. Sorry, I had your spot. Angela's wiring, on the other hand, she wants justice to be served. So sweetie over here, she leans over my center console and starts honking my horn for me. I was like, what are you doing? She said, well, you don't do that where I, where I come from. I was like, well, you do that where I come from, you get shot. 
At, at, at my core, I'm a small town mayor who just wants everybody to get along. <laughs> Angela's wiring is more that of an Old Testament prophet who wants justice to be served. And it's not a good and a bad, we're just wired differently. So you can see why it would be difficult for me to want to tell somebody that outside of Jesus Christ, that there is a God and outside of Jesus Christ, his posture toward you is one of wrath. That's not something that I naturally am going to want to do with somebody. So out of curiosity this week, I did a little research about the the preachers that I respect. And I I wanted to see how often they address this topic of, of God's wrath. It probably doesn't come as a surprise to many of you that John Piper set the bar here. 20% of his sermons address the wrath of God. The, the great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon it was over 17% of the time he would address the wrath of God. And even Tim Keller, who admittedly, you know, he kind of pulls up the rear in this, in this category, over 13% of his sermons from 1989 to 2009 addressed the wrath of God. So this is something that regardless of your culture, regardless of your wiring, regardless of your social maturity, it is unbelievably important for us to understand because the wrath of God and the love of God, they're inseparable. And so we, as Christians, we need to understand why that is, why it is that we, if we let go of the wrath, we lose the love so that we can grow, but then so that we can explain this to a culture that does not understand this at all. How is it that we have a God both of wrath and love, and how do those two things coincide? Unfortunately, that's the story of Joshua chapter 7 and 8. That's the story of Achan and I. So I want to look at the story. I want to see three things. First, we see the cause of God's wrath. Secondly, we see the consequences of God's wrath. And then finally, we see an appropriate response to God's wrath. All right, the cause of God's wrath. The cause of God's wrath is sin. Sin, plain and simply. And I've already mentioned this, but verse one is really interesting because it lets us know what's going on before any of the characters in the story know what's going on. So we don't have to wait and learn as the story goes. We know right off the bat, the problem that is going to unfold happens because Achan stole the devoted things. He took things for himself that were either supposed to be destroyed or they were supposed to be given to the treasury of the Lord. And so the author, you know, in verse one, he not only names Achan, he lays out his ancestry to the fourth generation. <laughs> he wants to be really sure we know which Achan this is and who's responsible for him. So, I mean, imagine... Imagine if you committed a crime and there was a digital billboard on I-4 downtown Orlando. Not only did your face pop up on there, but your parents' faces and your grandparents' faces and your great-grandparents' faces. That's how serious the author of this book is about Aiken's crimes. But in verse 1, we also see that it wasn't just limited to Aiken. The author is very, very clear to tell us that in some way all of Israel sinned. So this, in some way, the, the corporate guilt and the individual guilt, they're going hand in hand here in the story. And the way that Israel suffers because of everyone's sin is that when they go to conquer this city of Ai, a, a smaller city, a city that should have been easy to conquer, especially in light of all that God just did, right? He, he, he dried up the Jordan. He had the walls of Jericho fall down. So we get to this little city of Ai. It shouldn't be that difficult. But instead of victory, Israel receives a chilling defeat. And not just a defeat, but 36 Israelite soldiers die. 
So 36 might not sound like a lot, but these are the only recorded losses of the campaign. And it wouldn't just have been a loss. It would have signified something very significant to all the people in Israel. God is not going before you anymore. God is not winning your victories for you anymore. Unless there was any doubt about what's being communicated here in verse 12. God says, I will be with you no longer. So this is a deadly serious situation. So how do you think Joshua and the Israelites would have felt? I mean, I think it would have felt like a gut punch. I mean, certainly there would be confusion for most people. Why why is this happening? Certainly there would be, I, I think, fear, and in some cases maybe sheer terror, that they're in the middle of this foreign territory, and now God's not fighting for them anymore. On top of that, I think the... The Canaanites would have been emboldened. Maybe the Israelites have run out of luck. Their God's not real or just decided not to fight for them anymore. Maybe now's the time that we need to go and attack. This is a serious situation. Why is it that all of Israel should suffer for Achan's sin? And the, the text doesn't, it doesn't tell us exactly the reason, but I think at the very least, we can assume that it, Achan wasn't doing everything he was doing in secrecy. <laughs> I mean, it's not like in, in that day and age you can just hide these items as you bring them back to the camp. And you know, he didn't have this big private tent to himself. Likely they were stacked. These soldiers were stacked in these tents. So people would have known what he was doing. So even though it, all of Israel didn't commit the sin, much of Israel was complicit to the sin. They were enabling the sin. But even more importantly than that, the bigger question that we need to be able to answer is why is this such a big deal? So Achan stole a few things. <laughs> why is it that big a deal? Because it's sin. And sin is a big deal. In R.C. Sproul's book, The Holiness of God, he says this, sin is cosmic treason. Sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Have you ever considered the deeper implications of the slightest sin? What are we saying to our creator when we disobey him at the slightest point? We are saying no to the righteousness of God. We are saying, God, your law is not good. My judgment is better than yours. Your authority does not apply to me. I am above and beyond your jurisdiction. I have the right to do what I want to do, not what you command me to do. That's serious. So it doesn't matter how small the sin, if that's what we're saying to the God of the universe. So the cause of God's wrath is sin. How does that sit with you? That we serve a God that brings his full wrath to bear on sin. Because I know that's not a comfortable topic in our culture. And I think it's interesting. Have you ever noticed that our our culture, we want certain gods of wrath. We cheer for certain gods of wrath, but not, not the biblical God of wrath. You know, we cheer when the Avengers rid the galaxy of Thanos. You know, we cheer when Liam Neeson brings his wrath to bear on the people who took his daughter. You know, we cheer when the light side of the force brings its wrath to bear on the dark side of the force. We want a God that is going to bring 
his wrath against the injustice of the galaxy, just as long as that doesn't affect us. We want a God who's going to bring wrath to bear on sin, but not our sin. So we cheer for certain gods of wrath. And we run from and we laugh at a God of wrath who would care about our sin. We have this phrase in evangelicalism that, that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And there is an element of truth there. I'm not, I'm not throwing this all, all out completely. But there's a problem when in the first 50 Psalms, 14 times God says he hates the sinner. Like we have to wrestle with that. God, there's something about our sin that he hates so deeply. Every time we lie, every time we steal, every time we cheat, every time we gossip, grumble and gripe we are stealing the devoted things and we have to understand that we are committing cosmic treason against the God to whom we owe everything so our family has been doing a lot of driving this summer I wish we could fly everywhere but we drive (laughs) and as we drive we've been listening to C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia and in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's this, there's this scene where the witch gives Edmund Turkish delight. Do you remember that scene? And, and it's a perfect illustration of, of our sin. So I want you to hear what, what Lewis says about Turkish delight. He says, anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it till they killed themselves. Isn't that a perfect illustration of our sin? We desire and pursue the things that bring the wrath of God on us. That's the natural bent of all of our hearts. And I mean, if you think about it, a God who doesn't care about our sin really isn't a God worth caring about. Because we want a God who is going to bring justice to the Holocaust and sexual abuse and human trafficking and racism. We want a God who's going to bring justice to all these kinds of injustices, but we don't want a God who's going to bring justice to our own injustices. But we have to realize the inconsistency of this position and the consistency of the God of the Bible. So sin is the cause of God's wrath. Now, I think it's a reasonable question because I think everybody would agree in this room probably we're all sinners. We've all come up short. The next logical question then is, all right, how severe is this thing called God's wrath? Second point, what are the consequences of God's wrath? And we see this really clearly in chapter seven. The consequence of God's wrath is destruction. So Joshua rose up early in the morning and God showed him the people of Israel, tribe by tribe, clan by clan, household by household, and finally man by man, who it is that was causing the problems that Israel was experiencing. And so as they went by, it became clear the culprit was the tribe of Judah, the clan of the Zarahites, the household of Zabdi, and then finally the man Achan. This is the person. And Joshua asked Achan what he had done 
And at that point, of course, Achan spilled his guts. He said, this is what I've done. This is where all the stuff is. And it's, it's a fairly eloquent apology if you, if you look at it. And I think it would be normal for somebody you know, in this room to be reading this and say, well, this was a really good apology. <laughs> this was heartfelt. Why, why didn't Joshua let him off at this point? And I think that we can safely deduce from this text that, Josh, that sorry, Achan He's not apologizing because he's truly repentant. He's apologizing because he got caught. I mean, it would have been clear to Achan from the outset when they first lost the battle why this was happening. It would have been clear to Achan as they're going by tribe and clan and household who it is that they were looking for. But does Achan speak up? No. He's waiting to the last possible minute. He didn't say anything until he's absolutely caught. And so it's worth asking ourselves, are we truly repentant of our sin or are we just sorry when we get caught? Because it's a very big difference. So what is the consequence for Achan? He's treated like a Canaanite. He's devoted to total destruction. Not just him, but his family and all his livestock. And this is a heavy, heavy text. Again, if, if I just pick texts, you know, if we, I'm thankful we walk through books of the Bible because it forces me to speak on things that I don't want to talk about. I wouldn't pick this in the course of a year to talk about, but it's in the Bible, so we have to understand these things. We have to look at stories like this and understand the severity of sin, the gravity of sin, and the severity of God's wrath. We have to understand these things. That a price has to be paid for sin. A consequence has to happen for our sin. It's true for Achan and it's true for us. And there's this idea out there that, that hell is eternal separation from God. Eternal separation from the presence of God. And, you know, the element of truth in that is, yes, hell is separation from all of the pleasant sides of God. But hell is eternal, the eternal presence of the wrath of God. Hell is an eternity in the presence of God with no mediator at all. And it's at this point that Christianity diverges from every other worldview that I've ever heard of or read about. And I continually to try, try and see, is there, is, there a world, is there a worldview that doesn't fit into this one lump category of everything except Christianity? And to this point, I've not seen anything. Because every other worldview would largely agree that we fall short in some way and they would offer a path back to God, penance that we need to pay, a bridge that we need to build to be able to get back to God. But the Bible says that, not o- that we don't have the materials to build the bridge that we need to build to go back to God. Not only do we not have the materials, we don't even know which way to build this bridge. And the Bible even says that if we did have the materials and we did know the way to build this bridge, we don't even have the desire to carry it out. This is a huge difference between Christianity and every other worldview that has ever existed. Because the bridge is too far, the gap is too far, the consequences of our sin are too serious. I mean, imagine if there was somebody that was convicted of murder, just cold, convicted, no doubt. He's standing in the Orange County courthouse in front of the judge, and the judge says, you know what? If you will walk around this building 50 times on your knees, that'll be enough. There would be outrage in this community against that judge because that does not fit the crime. That does not fit the consequence. And in the same way, every other worldview doesn't address the gravity of sin against our cosmic creator. 
the perfect God of this universe. And I want you to pay attention because here is where wrath and love come together. Our God of wrath says a price has to be paid. But because he loves us so much, God the Father takes the penalty on God the Son, Jesus Christ, in our place. So our God isn't forgetting sin. He isn't overlooking sin. He isn't coming up with some some very small way to get around our sin. He is taking the full weight of the wrath of the sin that we deserve in some way on God the Son, Jesus Christ. And so here on the cross, we see a God that is both loving and wrathful. And you see that if you take the wrath of God out of it, the love totally falls apart. He has not come towards us in love in any way if his wrath doesn't exist. His wrath is absolutely integral to understand his love. And I love how my old seminary professor, D.A. Carson, your old seminary professor too, he says, if you want to see the wrath of God, look at the cross. And if you want to see the love of God, look at the cross. Because here is where God's love and God's wrath come together. They're separate but inseparable things to the character of the God of the Bible. I love how we, we sang the song in Christ alone. This is a really well-known song. I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't new to many of you. And in that song, there's a line that says, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And so a couple years ago, a, may, a, a very large mainline Protestant denomination, they wanted to bring the song in Christ alone into their, the newest ed- edition of their hymnal. But they didn't want that line, the wrath of God, was satisfied. And so they went to the authors of the song. They said, we want to take your song. We just, we just need to modify this one line. And they didn't think it was a big deal. And it would have been a great opportunity for the authors of the song because that's a whole new market of people to be singing and potentially buying their song. But the authors understand if you take that one line out, all the rest of the song falls apart. Because without the wrath of God, there is no love of God. And so to their credit, they said no. It can't be in your hymnal if it's going to be modified, and it wasn't. And did you notice what happened after Achan was stoned? What did God have them do? Make a memorial. Does this sound familiar? We just talked about a memorial a few weeks ago. So they they had to bring everything together, all the bodies, all the tent, everything, and pile stones on top of it, which would have been a big pile anyway, but you get the impression that it was even bigger than it needed to be because God wanted them to remember this place. So just a few weeks ago, back at the Jordan, there's a memorial to mark the faithfulness of God. And here we are establishing a memorial to mark the wrath of God. The Israelites needed to remember both if they were going to walk with the God of Israel into their promised land. And we need to remember both if we are going to walk with the same God into our better promised land. And if we do see that God is a God of love and he is a God of wrath, then we'll be more inclined to respond appropriately. Now this is where I want to finish because in this story we have a really great example of what it looks like 
to respond to this God. And no surprise, this response comes from Joshua, who seems to never do any wrong. Joshua shows us that an appropriate, an appropriate response to God's wrath is repentance. He sees that they've lost the battle. He sees that God isn't going in before them anymore. And he falls on his face in front of the ark, which represents the very presence of God. Then he begins to pray, what is going on? He didn't know all the details, but he knew something was going wrong. And he was seeking God. He was apologizing for whatever had happened and wanting to get God's wisdom and a return to his grace. And what we see in Joshua's response is exactly the opposite of Achan's. Do you notice this? So, Achan was just worried about getting caught. Joshua was worried about getting right. There's a huge difference there. Achan was concerned with his own gain. Joshua was concerned with God's glory. Because you see in chapter 7, Joshua is saying, God, we would have been fine if you had wanted to keep us on the other side of the Jordan. But now we're all the way over here. And he doesn't say, what are you going to do for us now? What does he say? What are you going to do for your name now? That's Joshua's concern. He's repenting and he's mostly concerned with God's glory. So how does God respond? He responds to Joshua in two ways. First, he responds by showing Joshua the offense. He shows Joshua what he had done what, or what they had done, what Achan specifically had done. And we can know that even though probably God's never gonna give us the big picture, he's never gonna give us every detail of our life, we can know that when things are not going the way we think they should go. He will be faithful to show us if there's something in our life that needs to change. He will be faithful to show us if we have the Holy Spirit inside of us and we have a repentant spirit, a repentant heart, that he will show us if we are walking in ways that are out of step with his will. He will show us if there's sin in our life that needs to be dealt with. He did it for Israel and he'll do it for us. And then secondly, God responds to Joshua's repentance by giving him I. And so this is most of chapter eight. You may remember the story. They go back to Ai with you know, publicly this smaller force. And the plan is that Ai is gonna be emboldened and all the warriors are gonna come out. And then the 30,000 Israelite soldiers or however many they were, they're gonna pounce on them, take the city and win the battle. And that's exactly what happens. It works like a charm. And then they take the king, the last living person among them, and they string him up in a tree and he hangs there publicly until the evening. This is another part. It just sounds really harsh to our eyes, but we have to understand there's a reason for doing this because the people of Israel, they have to know that justice has been served. For us, you know, we have things like newspapers, which I guess are a little outdated now. I had to explain to my kids a couple years ago what what newspapers were and they were trying to understand wait but you're paying for news that was yesterday's news and it's free online yeah but you get to hold it I don't know it's just but so we have newspaper we have Facebook we have Twitter we have ways of understanding when justice has been served but these are all relatively new mediums you know there's a reason that cities like London when they would have an execution they would put the heads on the bridges so that everyone can know that justice has been served the whole city could see by this man hanging on a tree that justice has been served. And we too, in a similar way, we can know that justice has been served for us. 
And that's very different than saying justice has been served on us. We as Christians can know justice has been served for us because of another man who hung on another tree. Jesus Christ, justice was served on him, the perfect, innocent God-man. The full wrath of God was born on him in our place. And because he hung on that wooden cross, we can know that justice has been served on our behalf. And we can now be guiltless children of God. That is the Christian message. It's fundamentally different than every other message because nothing that we do, it's everything that he's done. And I can't finish without pointing out one thing. Did you notice in chapter eight what happened to the plunder of Ai? All of Israel got to keep it. So Achan is trying to, you know, he's trying to steal all this plunder, not knowing that God's plan was that they're gonna eventually get to keep all the plunder. So it seems like Achan would have gotten more material possessions. He would have been better off had he just waited and been patient and trusted God. But he couldn't do that. He had to take matters in his own hands. And so in the same way for us, we can be tempted to take matters in our own hands instead of waiting and being patient and wondering how God is gonna have this transpire. And the way that God has things transpire, they're not always the, you know, the same way that we would script our lives. But the promise is that we have, the promise that we have is that God's way, if we will be patient and wait on him, that his way is always going to be better than if we had taken matters into our own hands. So the valley where all this transpires, do you know what it's called? Acor, not acorn, acor. And what does that sound like? Achan, acor, Achan. There's a play on his name. Acor means trouble. And so you have this valley where your sins have brought trouble on you with this monument that you should remember by name and by sight. And this valley of Achor, this isn't the last time we hear about it. If you go forward to Hosea chapter two, God is talking about a defiant Israel. And this is what he says. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. So this this valley of trouble is going to become a door of hope. How does that happen? This place where punishment came is gonna open a door of hope. What is that foreshadowing? Absolutely the gospel of Jesus Christ. The place where punishment happened, it opens a door of hope. The place where the wrath of God was given to Jesus Christ, it opens a door of hope to all the rest of us. This is foreshadowing the Christian message. It's pointing forward to Jesus Christ because our God is not a God who ignores sin or forgets about sin. Our God is a God who fixes sin. And the way he has chosen to fix our sin is through bringing us Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that it is in that moment that we, and only in that moment, that we can understand how the wrath of God and the love of God not only perfectly coincide, but are absolutely needed for either to continue. If we take the wrath of God out of the story of the Bible, we lose every bit of the love of God. 
And so my hope is that all of us can appreciate God's grace and glory and mercy and patience more because we understand his wrath against sin. And my hope also is that we're gonna be able to explain this to other people better. So here's my challenge to you. Imagine if somebody comes to you and says, I just don't understand how you can, you can have this God of love and this God of grace, yet these stories of wrath. I don't see how it goes together. I want you to play that out in your mind. I want you to answer that question. And I want you to pray that God would give you an opportunity to explain that to somebody. And I am expectant that if we have an answer to that question, if you've practiced it and if you're praying for that, that God will give you an opportunity to talk to somebody about it. So that's your challenge for this week. I want to finish by praying exactly for that. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you do care about us. You care about injustice, all the injustices around us, and absolutely the justices, injustices inside of us. And you have chosen not just to smite us or ignore us or forget us, but you've chosen to fix us and to redeem us, and you've done that through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you would help us to understand more deeply this this union of your wrath and your love, why one is vital for the other. And I pray that you would give us opportunities to go out of this church, to be sent people, and to communicate this in very clear and faithful and concise ways to people who need to hear this message. We thank you for this morning. We, we pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.